Well, welcome to Gatbo week number three. Anybody loving God at the box office? This uh, today, as we jump in, is just, a, uh, is just unique from maybe other messages and other series. Uh, most of you guys who've been here for a while will hear me say this, but from time to time, I don't plan last minute. I'm not up Saturday night trying to decide what do I want to preach? What's God helped me to say? Uh, I typically plan my preaching calendar in October of the year to come, and I plan out my entire preaching calendar, all the series, all the messages, pray through and navigate what are the topics we need to talk about. And we love God at the box office. It is a series we first started doing, I believe, 2015. Every year we do it, we see literally thousands of guests online and show up at our campuses. We see lots of people who give their lives to Jesus, and many people decide to make Faith Church their home when the series is over. So we put in a ton of creativity and effort and we love to do it. However, as I get ready for my preaching calendar in October of the year before, one of the things I do in anticipation of Gatbo is I look ahead to the Hollywood release movie calendar. What movies are coming out in the summer? Try to look at what movies that I anticipate are gonna be blockbusters, what movies are uh, what movies are family friendly and what movies maybe have some unique themes that we can use that we can leverage just to have some fun, but at the same time to talk about God's word and God's principles that God at the box office. Well, most of you guys know that uh, looking forward all the way last year, we knew coming out this summer was going to be light year. Um, and I don't know about you guys, anybody here at any of our campus, you guys love the Toy Story series. I, I'm a fan. It's a kid's series, but I love it. So in anticipation, Lightyear was this movie that was coming out. We knew it was coming. It's in the Toy Story theme. It's an origination story for this iconic character, Buzz Lightyear. How can you go wrong with Buzz Lightyear? Well, so we, I put it on my preaching calendar. Our team, we planned months ahead. And so we were planning builds and all the stuff we do for God at the box office. And it was just about two months ago, we were well in our way of planning the series and planning specifically today. And we found out there was a, uh, a news release that Disney had decided to allow or to put in the movie Lightyear, A Lesbian Kiss. And so right away, there were the con these conversations happening on our staff and on our team. Do we proceed? Do we not proceed? Uh, we had people who were willing to help with the builds early who stepped off the build team because they in no way wanted to be associated. And we're okay with that. But it was just this challenge. Do we, do we like go in or do we back off? And I don't know how well you know me. I decided to proceed. I figure, again, I just don't randomly pick topics. I spend a lot of time praying. And so I felt like, Lord, you, you knew what was going on. So we're going to go ahead and tackle this issue. And I understand it's a, it is a, this issue of homosexuality is a big issue for the church. It's a big issue for culture. And, and frankly, uh, I, I just don't think there's enough pastors who are engaging in this conversation enough. And the reason I know that is because some of the people who attend here, I have conversations and you can tell they're just not sure how to handle it, not sure what to say. And um, so as we, as we navigate this today, let me just give you um, just a couple disclaimers. Number one, this conversation is way too big to really uh, tackle it or have a conversation well in one week. So I'm not going to say everything there is to say uh, in one week. I'm, in fact, specifically, some of the verses we're going to talk about today, there's more to be said about the verses than I have time to properly exegete in one service. Um, Number two, and probably a more important disclaimer that I want to give on the front end is this. If you'll do me a favor and hear all I have to say and be, above all, hear my heart when I say it. So every now and then people get mad and leave and it is what it is. Uh, but if, if I say something, uh, don't get up and leave. I mean, you can, nobody's going to block the door, but uh, hear, hear everything I have to say. And far more importantly than the words I use, hear my heart. Whoever you are and wherever life finds you, as your pastor, I am for you. And I passionately love you and want nothing but the best for you. And so if I say something that is unnecessarily sharp or stinging, that is not my heart. My heart as your pastor is for us together to lean into God's word and to walk away better Christ followers. And so hear everything I have to say and hear my heart when I say it. Amen. Amen. Everybody good with the ground rules? Okay. Remember that. You clap. There's no, no, you can't come back from the clap. So this is a, this is a challenging conversation for a lot, a lot of reasons, but as we get ready to navigate this, why this has become such a difficult conversation is because we have allowed culture 
to determine the rules of engagement. We have allowed culture to decide how and if and when we talk about this. And this is how this plays out, for example, and maybe you've heard this or maybe you have felt this, this idea that, that if you love homosexuals, you will, you will affirm them. And if you don't affirm them, well, then you're a homophobe and you hate them. And right away, we get painted into the corner of silence because you, know, you might feel like you can't affirm that lifestyle, but you're not hateful. That's not my heart to be hateful. And so right away we feel like, wait a minute, if those are my two options and we just, it just gets awkward out of the gate. I just got to tell you all this. This has been so difficult. Most of the time, nobody knows what I'm preaching uh, until we get here. Uh, many, for years I've been preaching and my wife asked me all the time, hey, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I always tell the same thing, Jesus. <laughs> nobody gets a peek at my notes. Me and Jesus, that's it until Sunday morning. However, this has again been such a big, complex conversation. I have felt the weight of it because I, again, I wanna make sure I'm navigating our faith well. I wanna make sure that I'm navigating this conversation well. And so my family, we are invested in this ministry. We're invested in this church. We have people, and I want you to know if you are here and uh, you are in a homosexual lifestyle, we love you and we're glad you're here. And we know that there are couples here in our church in Florence. We have several couples in our Lawrenceburg campus and our Shoals campus. And uh, my, my daughter is friends, very close friends with some of those. And you can tell, she's like, dad, don't blow it. <laughs> and so I can just tell you when this message is over, I'm gonna sleep great tonight. Great tonight. But here's what I know is at the end of the day, while culture is trying to set the rules of engagement, I've just determined that love can't remain silent. Love speaks up. Love says something. And again, it's not fair because culture has kind of set this rule where we feel like we have to choose. You choose. You get to either choose to have convictions or compassion, but culture will tell you you can't have both. To have convictions is to look at people in homosexual lifestyle and say, my conviction is that that's outside of God's, God's standard for your life. But then the homosexual community will tell us that we don't have any compassion. We don't want to be viewed that way. But then on the flip side, if we choose to have compassion and we choose to be accepting and love people the way Jesus did, then we have church people look at us and say, well, you have no convictions. And it's literally damned if you do and damned if you don't. We feel like, well, I want to have convictions, but I want to have compassion. And you tell me I got to have one or the other. And we're just not sure. And where it really gets more difficult is where, again, we feel like culture tells us that you have to choose family or faith. Because where this, there's this challenge and this conversation gets very difficult is because some of you, you are, you are the person in the homosexual, gay, lesbian lifestyle. Or it's our friends or it's our daughters or our sons. And this, this conversation really gets difficult when it's our daughter who comes to us, who we love and we love, irregardless of who they are and what they do. And they come to us and they tell us, you know, hey, mom, dad, I'm, you know, I, I feel like I'm a lesbian and that's the lifestyle I'm in. And right away we feel like, well, do we love them or do we love Jesus? <laughs> like which, and it's this tough thing because we don't want to abandon our faith, but we're not going to abandon our kids. And culture will tell you, you have to pick one or the other. And I want you to know as your pastor, you don't have to pick one or the other. You're commanded to pick both. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like the first, to love your neighbors yourself. The only, only time you have to pick either is when somebody makes you pick one. In that case, it's always Jesus. But we're commanded to love God and love people. So at the end of the day, I've just determined that culture doesn't get to set the standard of my, my reality and it doesn't get to choose the guidelines of my conversation. This is a difficult conversation to have. And again, it, sometimes we feel in culture that if we want to have this conversation, if we want to engage, we just get painted or I get painted in a way that I'm not. It's not my heart. And so we feel like we're just silenced. Just shut up and don't say anything. Proverbs 27, verse six says this. I want us to read this together at all of our campuses. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. So again, culture says, if you don't agree with me, be quiet. And God's word says, if you really love people, you're gonna speak up. And sometimes what you say might hurt, but the goal is health. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to a surgeon, do surgeons wound people or help people get healthy? 
Well, both, but they use wounds to a path of health. And sometimes being challenging or engaging in conversations with friends, with loved ones, with people you're close to, not with people you don't know, but that's what really it means to be a true friend. Hebrews 3.13 says this, for all the believers in the house, if you're not a Christian, man, I'm glad you're here. If you're tuning in, man, thanks so much for being here. But if you're a Christ follower, I want you to hear what God's word says to all of us. It says you must warn, you must do what? Warn each other every day while it's still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So it feels like God is saying, no, you need to speak up in the right context, in the right relationship. You need to be willing to have conversations. We need to warn each other. We need to be a friend that sometimes wounds. Now I hear the culture and culture will ring back. You can't judge me. Who are you to judge? Jesus said, don't judge. And I would just tell you this. I know exactly what Jesus said. And Jesus never said, don't judge. What Jesus did say is this, and if we're gonna judge, and if we're gonna have hard conversations, what Jesus did say was not don't judge, but if you judge, do it after careful and thorough self-examination first. So you ought to be concerned that someone's got something in their eye, but before you come in hot and heavy, get the log out of your own eye. Number two, uh, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, Paul said as believers... As people of faith, we're to judge insiders, not outsiders, which means we're really good at telling the world how we think they ought to live. But Jesus said, you need to quit worrying about how the world's living and be more concerned about how you're living. It's when you judge, when as Christ followers, we judge how the world's living, that's like we're judging the game of baseball based on football rules. They're playing a different sport. They're not committed to follow Jesus. They never said they're Christians. So how can we hold them to a biblical standard? The people who ought to be held to a biblical standard are us who said we are following Jesus. We're not to judge outsiders. We're to judge insiders. And the goal of judging is never condemnation. The goal of having hard conversations isn't to make people feel bad. The goal isn't condemnation. The goal is restoration. That we want to take people by the hand and we want to move them further in their faith journey with Jesus. And so I want you to know, I recognize coming into this conversation, it would have been easy for me to duck this conversation and none of you would have known I ducked it. But I understand while there's something at risk to engage in this conversation, I feel like there's far more at risk to not engage in it. And love does not remain silent. So I want to show you, just take a little side note here. And this is less out of the biblical side, but I think it's important to show this. So Gallup, Gallup is an American pollster, uh, business, whatever. And you probably, lots of things that you read in the news, you read online. A lot of the polls that you read are done by Gallup polling. Gallup did a poll last year. They just released the results, uh, not just several months ago. And what they did is they interviewed thousands of Americans and they asked them, do you identify LGBTQ? And if they did, they put them in these categories, but they did it based on generation. And I want you to see this graph, this beautiful, incredible graph I did. Let's give it up for the graph. But what I want you to see is notice that again, this is how people say they identify. I identify LGBTQ based on my generation. Traditionalists, that generation, the oldest generation, 0.8% say, yes, I identify as LGBTQ. Notice that it doubles the boomer generation. Many of you identify at 2.6%. My generation, I am Gen X, identify at 4.2%. The millennial generation identifies at 10.5%. And the youngest generation, uh, really the main prior, uh, this is the largest generation on the planet, identify at 21.8% or 20.8%. Now, the last category is just based on projection. The up-and-coming generation, Gen Alpha, based on projection, it'll double again that almost 42% of them are anticipated to identify as LGBTQ. Here's why this is so important, is because people identifying as LGBTQ is doubling every single generation. This, here's why this is important, is because rates are only climbing this fast and this high in this nation. I'm not saying other people don't identify LGBTQ across the world. That, that, obviously, we know that's not true. But it's only happening this fast, this quick here in America, which means part of what's happening is cultural. 
I just want you to hear this, that it's easy for all of us to get caught in culture. And something is happening culturally in our nation. And more than just the statue see, in the last five years, in the last five years, traditionalists and boomers and Gen Xers have not changed. Their, their percentages have remained the same. While in the last five years, millennials have increased at an identification rate of 50% and Gen Z has increased at an identification rate of being LGBTQ at 100%. So it's not just the largest, I mean, exponentially, they're identifying as LGBTQ. Something's going on. And so I think we just need to have this conversation because it's a big, big part of culture. So here's the big question is, at the end of the day, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Now, it's important that I frame this question properly because when I say, what does the Bible say? You may not believe, but I believe that the Bible is our standard for faith and practice, which means not when it describes, but when it prescribes how we should live. When we live according to God's word, that's where we find eternal life. That's where we find our greatest joy and purpose. And that's where we bring God our greatest glory. So any place our lives are outside of God's word, when we submit ourselves to God's word, we're saying, Jesus, we believe that your plan is the best plan. And this is how I'm going to bring you the greatest glory by living my life according to your word. So that's why the word is important. Now, y'all can clap all you want, but you just... You might not want to clap for a little bit because <laughs> if you keep clapping here, you got to keep clapping all the way to the end. So as I wrestled through this, um, it's, it's easy and, and all of us are guilty of this, but it's easy to grow up in a church and just say, well, the, the Bible says, and you heard a pastor quote a verse. And so you think you're, you think you understand the Bible. And about 20 years ago, progressive theologians, very smart theologians, most, I would believe, genuinely love the Lord, started coming out with conversations of why specifically homosexual lifestyles, monogamous homosexual lifestyles were okay. And I just had to pull back and say, maybe I'm wrong. And so it was important to me to dig into what does the word really say? Not, well, I heard a verse or I heard someone say, but actually become a student of the word and really try to understand what does God's word teach? Not the, what, what does it say? Not, not what does someone say it says? And so there are some really smart people that have come up with some really smart, intelligent, sophisticated arguments. And I just want to dig into some of these verses and let's just lean in together. Here's what it says in Leviticus 18.22. It says, you shall not lie. With a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Guys, don't have sex with guys as you would with a girl. It's an abomination. Now we hear this verse, and this is found in the book of Leviticus. This is the law, God's law, and it was given specifically for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel, they were a theocracy. God was their king. God was their president. They didn't have anybody else over them, and they took their lead from God's law. We do what God tells us to do. And that's how they identified. And so God gave all kinds of laws on how they lived, what they did, what they ate. And so some people will point to this verse and say, well, pastor, it does say that homosexuality is wrong, but it also says eating shellfish is wrong, which it does. And it also says uh, wearing mixed materials is wrong. And it does. And so their argument would be, why is it you can, t you can tell me I can't be homosexual, but you can go to Gulf Shores and you can eat... <laughs> You can eat shrimp wearing polyester shorts. <laughs> and a lot of us were like, good argument. I don't know. And let me just answer it. At the end of the day, we're not under God's law. Jesus fulfilled the law for us that we couldn't fulfill. The purpose of the law was to show us we're lawbreakers. But more importantly than that, specifically hear this is that there are some laws that remain in the Old Testament and some still carry over. Why We're not righteous by keeping the law. We're still called to be moral beings and maintain a level of morality that God sets for us. And what we find is some of the laws in the Old Testament carry over to the new. For example, every single one of the 10 commandments we find repeated in the New Testament. We're still, just because we're, we're Christians doesn't mean we can lie now. We're still called not to lie, not to steal, not to cheat, not to covet. And one of the other laws that we find, while there is no, uh, there is no um, outlawing of shellfish, praise the Lord, <laughs> in polyester in the New Testament, uh, 
we do find homosexuality mentioned in the Old and in the New Testament. So that prohibition feels like it carries over. Some talk about, well, Sodom and Gomorrah, if you were raised in church, you've been in church, like right away we go to the homosexuality card. And there have been, again, lots of theologians that have come out and made the point that Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed for homosexuality. The Bible says why it was destroyed, found in Ezekiel chapter 16. I want us to read it together. It says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. So again, some theologians would say right there, pastor, it wasn't destroyed for homosexuality. Let me just ask a question and I won't ask you to raise your hands much today, but if you'll help me here at all of our campuses, how many of you here have ever wrestled with being proud? Come on, lazy, a glutton, not caring for poor people like you should, just wave at me. And people will say right here, the Bible says why it was destroyed. And while it is true, that's part of the reason that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. That's not the entire reason. And the reason we know it is because Jude in the New Testament tells us this. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of eternal fire of God's judgment. The word that's used here for... Um, for sexual perversion is the word pornea or sexual immorality. It's pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. And theologians generally agree, when I say generally, by far the majority agree that the word sexual perversion or immorality or pornea describes any sexuality outside of God's design of one man and one woman in the context of marriage for life. So it's not just homosexuality, it's fornication, it's sex outside of marriage, not pointing any fingers, adultery, which Jesus said is also lust in your heart, masturbation, pornography, incest. Like it's not just homosexuality. It's anything outside of God's design. And so the Bible says, while Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in part for laziness and greediness, it was also destroyed for sexual perversion or immorality. Then you get to Romans chapter one. If you've had this conversation, possibly you've heard this come up. Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul, he writes and he's describing again this conversation of homosexuality. And there are modern theologians will say the apostle Paul was not outlawing a monogamous relationship between two loving homosexual men or women. That what the apostle Paul was outlawing was something called pederasty. Pederasty existed all throughout Greece and all throughout the Roman empire. And what pederasty was is pederasty were, was adult males that was, uh, that was going after young boys. And people would say, the apostle Paul, what he was doing was he was acknowledging that it's wrong for older men to dominate younger boys. And that's what the apostle Paul was outlawing. That's what he was putting a prohibition against. But I want us to read this because I think it's more than that. In Romans chapter one, verse 26 and 27, Paul says this, he says, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for one another. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserved. So again, some will read that and say, the apostle Paul is prohibiting pederasty. This is why I know he's not talking about just Pederasty, two reasons. One, notice he says it's men with other men. There were lots of words in the Greek language that the Apostle Paul could have easily utilized that he does other places to talk about old men, young men, adolescent men, mature men, and boys. If he wanted to distinguish mature men going after young boys, he would have chosen different words, but he did not. He chose men with men, male with males. And the, also, the other reason we know he's not talking about just pederasty is because notice the apostle Paul says the women did the same thing. There was no female equivalent to pederasty in the Roman empire. I'm not saying older women didn't pursue younger girls, but generally it was not a thing that was on the, the morality radar. So we know the apostle Paul, just like in Leviticus and Sodom and Gomorrah saying homosexuality is outside of God's design. First Corinthians six, nine and 10, he says this, he says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, who commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some will read that and say, see right there, the apostle Paul clearly says homosexuality. If you embrace a homosexual lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it feels like it says that pretty clearly. Let me just make a couple comments. First of all, I want you to notice, um, let me ask this question. It says, don't you realize those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom? How many people here do wrong? Everybody should be raising their hand. Let's part of you're doing wrong is you're lazy. How many people here? <laughs> Come on, one more time. We're in, this, we're in this faith journey together. How many people do wrong? So certainly he's not saying if you do wrong, you, you're not going to heaven because that's all of us. What he's saying is, it's, it's not about this, this struggle in our spiritual journey to honor God with our life. What he's saying is, if you choose to identify in a way that's outside of God's design for your life, then you're choosing a way that's outside of God's design. And so you can't have the kingdom if you don't want the king. But listen to this. I want you to notice this because this is really important. I, I think it's crazy how we as the church have drawn a line that's not here. We draw a line that here's the line and homosexuals are out and the rest of us are okay. Notice this homosexuality is not the only person or the only issue or the only sin listed. He talks about cheaters and liars and drunk, which are a lot of you in this room. We all need Jesus. So, but here's the question is, what's, what's a homosexual? When he says homosexuality, because that term culturally and spiritually, it just has some different nuances that we wrestle through. And I want y'all to hear me really, really well here. Homosexuality is when one person is attracted to another person of the same sex. So when the Bible says homosexuals among other people, among other groups of sin and lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God, homosexuals, is he saying if you have homosexual attraction, if you are one, one gender and you're attracted to another gender, because there are people that, that, feel that feel that attraction and they wrestle with it and they don't give in to it and nobody knows. But according to culture, if you are same-sex attracted, you're homosexual. And there's another nuance of the word that you're same-sex attracted and you don't want to embrace in that lifestyle and you wrestle with it. But like all of us, things that we know dishonor God, we find ourselves falling into that behavior. Is anybody tracking with me? That's also homosexual. But then there's those that that is their identity and that is who they are and that is fully wheels off, guardrails down. They're living that lifestyle. And so when I say homosexual, and I'm maybe talking to some of you personally, some of you are here and you're same-sex attracted and you're trying to navigate that and you're trying to wrestle that and you're trying to, trying to figure out how that fits with your faith and your lifestyle. And some of you are same-sex attracted and you don't necessarily wanna be and you feel like it's outside of what God has for you and you find yourself still falling in that lifestyle from time to time. And some of you are here and I'm glad you're here. And you just determine that's who you are. And I would say this, and this is important. When I talk about those nuances of homosexuality, for many, homosexuality is a sanctification issue, not a salvation issue. So when people ask the question, can I be gay and go to heaven? Let me ask you a question. Can you be you with your struggles and go to heaven? So if you have chosen any lifestyle out God of God's word and you're just doing your thing and you don't care what God says, I think you've decided to indulge and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you're trying to navigate it, you've given your life to Jesus and you're trying to figure this thing out. I think it's a sanctification issue, which means everybody's welcome to follow Jesus. Everybody's welcome to follow Jesus. And when you decide to follow Jesus, you will believe before you behave. Which means when you serve, when you first, well, I can't speak for anybody. I know for me, when I first came to Jesus, I acted just like I did before I came to Jesus. My heart had changed and it has taken me 30 years for what he's done on the inside to more increasingly gradually work its way to the outside. Which means this, hang on, wait, wait, don't clap yet. Listen, you can clap right here if you're gonna clap anywhere. Is if you follow Jesus long enough, Jesus will eventually, your sexuality will be confronted by your spirituality. If you follow Jesus long enough, he will eventually tap you on your shoulder. He will 
will challenge your fornication. He will talk to you about your adultery. He will deal with your pornography issue. He will engage in the homosexual attraction that you're wrestling with. Eventually, if you follow Jesus long enough, he will bring you and call you into alignment with his word. You don't have to clap, but that is my point. Some people will say this, but pastor, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Like we're making this big deal about, and Jesus never mentioned it. And it's true. Jesus never says the word homosexuality. But arguing your exegetical or theological stance from silence is stupid. Because Jesus does tackle the sexuality question quite clear. First of all, in Mark chapter seven, he also prohibits pornea, sexual immorality, which homosexuality would be a part of that among the other things I've already talked about. But specifically, the religious come and want to have a conversation with Jesus about sexuality and marriage. And here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 19, verse four and verse five. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he, and he said this, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united as one. So what Jesus does do is he points back to the beginning when God created everything. And his point is that he believes and Jesus teaches that marriage is a sexed union between one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one life. And that is God's design. And if God gets to design it, God gets to define it. So Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality, but he does say, this is what my design for sex and sexuality was, is one man and one woman in the context of marriage for life. Everybody breathe in, breathe out. It's a lot to wrestle through. Again, for all of us, it's this conversation. This is, I hope this is why you come to church because this is what I prepare. Lord, help me to understand your word and teach your word in a way that calls all of us to a place of submission. Whatever area it's in in our life, that we can find the greatest joy and bring you the greatest glory. Lord, every week, help me to teach in a way that all of us can find this place where we're surrendering to your word, that we can find the greatest joy and bring you the greatest glory. And so let's talk about Jesus for a minute because Jesus did really well with this conversation. We're kind of clumsy. We're like, you know, we're like adolescents. You know, when any guys, I can't speak for girls, but guys, when you're like 12, 13 and your feet are way fast, growing way faster than the rest and you're clumsy. Like a lot of us in our faith, we're clumsy with this conversation. Jesus, he is our goal. And I want to read a verse. I want us all to read it together. John chapter one, verse 14. Notice what it says about how Jesus dealt with the issues that you and I wrestle with. John chapter one, verse 14, everybody read it. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. Read it, full of and, ooh, y'all read that good. Let's do it again. Full of and not full of grace or truth, not half and half, not 50-50. When Jesus engaged people, addressed topics, dealt with challenges every single time, he was full of, to the brim and spilling over, full of truth and full of grace, full of grace and full of truth. And there is a tension in this that cannot be resolved. If you try to push Jesus into a level of truth that abandons grace, you make Jesus who he was not. And if you try to make Jesus embrace a level of grace and calls him or believe that he's ignoring truth, you ask him to be somebody he's not. Our job is to be like the one we say we're following. We need to learn how to be people who are full of grace and truth, which means we can talk about convictions and at the same time have compassions. We can be people of grace and invite people on our journey to know the Jesus we're following and still be people of convictions and believe God's word is true. See, grace and truth, Jesus, he navigated both of them so well. The difference between grace and truth, grace says you're forgiven. Truth says you're accountable. Truth says repent. Grace says you're accepted just the way you are. Grace says you're saved. Truth says you're sinful. Grace says you're covered. Truth says you're condemned. And when you look at the conversations Jesus had, he had both of them on and on and on. Jesus was full of grace and truth. If you're taking notes so we can hold again convictions and show 
compassion. I want to look at a story. It's really familiar. In John chapter eight, it's the conversation where this woman's caught with her pants down. Come on, I worked on that one. Help me out there. She's caught literally in an adulterous affair. She is caught sleeping with this guy, the religious of the day. They bring her. We picture probably she's got like a, you know, something draped over her. She's embarrassed. And they throw her at the feet of Jesus and they try to make Jesus make a decision. They make him try to pick between grace and truth. And notice what the Bible says in this story. It says, John chapter eight, verse four, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Verse 11, no, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, I want you to read this because this is Jesus walking in the tension of grace and truth. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. But go and sin no more. That's truth. See, I don't know if you know the trap, but here's the trap they were trying to catch Jesus in. The trap was this is that the law said, God's word, the Old Testament, the Bible says, if you're caught in the act of adultery, your local faith community picks up rocks and judges you on behalf of God. It was the Bible. So it would have been very easy for them to say, Jesus, the Bible says, our convictions say, our faith says that what she's doing is wrong. We need to condemn her. The truth says, the Bible says. And Jesus could have very easily and been been very biblical to pick up a rock and stone her because the Bible did say, but that's not what Jesus did. See, the tension was that if you catch somebody in adultery, the law says you stone them. So on one hand, he had the law of God. On the other side, he had the law of Rome. You just couldn't kill people willy-nilly. You had to get permission from Rome to kill somebody. So if, if he chose to kill the woman, he would have been confronted by Rome and probably killed by Rome, which he was eventually, or do what the law said. And you see Jesus, he, he navigates again grace and truth so well, because again, while he had every right, it was biblical. And this is what Christians say. We stand up and we shake the Bible. The Bible says, the Bible says, And yes, I just went through six verses. Yes, the Bible seems to say that homosexuality is outside of God's design. But Jesus didn't just come full of truth. He came full of grace. So what's the tension for us between grace and truth and truth and grace? I believe the homosexual lifestyle is contrary to a Christ-like lifestyle. It is outside of God's perfect design for human sexuality and throughout scripture seems to be condemned as sin. But I equally believe that the homosexual person is fully made in the image of God, just like every other person in this room, is fully loved by God equally like every single person in this room, and is equally, uh, is equally died for by the Savior of the world, just like everybody else in this room, is equally invited to follow Jesus, just like everybody else in this room. It is the tension between truth and grace. And here's where we get it wrong. And I just want to lean hard into this part of this conversation is, is I love our country. I know there's all these mixed feelings and some of us are waving flags and man, we got stuff on our trucks and we got stuff on our hats. And some of us, man, we like, I hate this country. Do your thing, man. That's part of the beauty of this country is, is you have like, you can just make your opinion known. We have, we have the right to be vocal. And I think that's a beautiful thing, but let me just challenge all of you Christians who have put your nationalism above your faith. You got it flipped backwards and upside down specifically this conversation. We have made the homosexuality conversation, a political conversation. And in making it a political conversation, we have forgotten that there are people behind the politics. And when they threw this woman down, all they were concerned about was the politics of leveraging Jesus out of power. 
And one of the things we have to get back to as people of grace and compassion is we have to remember that these are our sons and daughters and our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. And we need to have compassion that these are real human beings with real feelings, with a real human experience that they're trying to navigate just like we are. And we owe them dignity, love, compassion, and manners. Because that's what Jesus did. So you gotta ask the question, right? Here's, here's this scene, this woman's here. She's been caught in the act of adultery. The law says, the Bible says, convictions say, truth says, stoner. And while Jesus had every right to pick up a rock, he didn't. Instead, he kneels down and he writes in the sand. You have to ask, like, what was Jesus writing in the sand? Don't you wanna know? I've heard pastors preach on this. I have myself preached on this for multiple times in the 30 years I've been preaching. And if somebody tells you they know what Jesus wrote, they lie. The reason I know, and I can give an opinion, but the reason I know I don't know what Jesus wrote is because the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. But I know what Jesus didn't write. Jesus did not write a line in the sand of who was in, who was out, who qualified and who didn't. Love doesn't have a line. We are all qualified for the love of God. It wasn't a line. I'm gonna just put this out here. I want you to think for a second. If you were to put a word in the blank, what word do you think is okay for you to put in this blank for you personally? looking at somebody else, looking at your neighbor, looking at somebody in the culture we live in, if you are a blank, I cannot and will not love you. What do you think you as a Christ follower can put in that blank that has God's cosign? If you are a blank, I cannot and will not love you. If you are a Democrat, an independent, a Republican, a white person, a black person, Hispanic person, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're homosexual, if you're LGBTQ, I cannot and will not love you. Love doesn't have a line. In the church of Christ followers, following somebody, said everybody gets a turn. Everybody's worthy. I came for everybody. We just have to navigate, like stop being silenced out of your convictions, but stop being mean and hateful and losing compassion. We just have to find a way in this complexity, in these challenges, to have bold conversations with people you know and people you love, but with compassion and grace and understand they're going through a journey just like you. They're facing temptations and challenges in life just like you and just like me. The most beautiful thing about Jesus is he was called a friend of sinners, which means he didn't hang out with perfect people. I heard Andy Stanley say one time that people that were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. People that were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. People that were attracted to Jesus were the people that some of us have an issue with and a hard time with. But Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of prostitutes and a friend of lepers and a friend of tax collectors. He was a friend of people just like you and I. But here's the thing is, he invited them over and over. He would say, come and follow me. Everybody said, come and follow me. This is important. Here's the distinction I believe Jesus did make that again, culture tells us we can't make is acceptance is not affirmation. You can accept everybody, but doesn't mean you have to affirm the choices and lifestyles are in. Jesus invited these people to come follow him, but he didn't necessarily affirm the lifestyles and choices they were in. Part of following Jesus is to become like the person you're following. So acceptance is an affirmation. I love you. But at some point we might have a conversation because I love you. At the end of the day, these guys standing around self-righteous, ready to throw rocks. Here's a question, church. You ready for this one? Do you hate your sin as much as you hate everybody else's sin? Let me just take that just down a notch. Are you as concerned about how your kids, is, kids are living as much as you're concerned about how everybody else's kids are living? Again, the goal, what is the goal? The goal isn't condemnation. The goal is restoration. The goal is to see people move forward in a fake journey. If it was up to these religious people, they would have killed this woman. But Jesus didn't want her to find death. Jesus wanted her to find life. If your desire is to help people see their sin 
If it isn't matched with an equal desire to help them see the Savior, you will kill them every time. If all you want to do is rub their face in your convictions, if all you want to do is say, the Bible says, you will kill them every time. But if in you helping them to understand that maybe they're in a lifestyle, maybe I'm in a lifestyle, maybe we're making choices that are outside of God's best. If someone's calling us to live different, if the call isn't restoration, we will kill them every time. And I just have to wonder if church, that some of us who are demanding this world around us change, is it our desire to make homosexuals into heterosexuals or to make sinners into saints? Because if we make sinners into saints, if we introduce people to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will inevitably tap everyone on the shoulder, including me and including you at the right time, have the right conversation. In all the issues in our life, God's gonna work on those things. And then he says, go and sin no more. He says, I want you, he says, I don't condemn you. John 3.16, the greatest verse, we all love John 3.16, but did you know John 3.17, what it says? Jesus said, I did not come into this world to condemn this world. This world's already condemned. I've come to save this world. You don't need to tell broken people they're broken. We already know we're broken. You don't need to point your finger at me. I know sometimes I got attitude issues. Nobody needs to remind me. I know sometimes I'm arrogant and think I'm right. Nobody needs to remind me. I, I know I mess up. I know where I'm flawed. I need somebody to tell me what the solution is. I need somebody to love me enough to take me by the hand and lead me into this walk with Jesus. But again, culture says, culture says, if you're not loving, then you're not going to affirm people. If you love people, you're going to affirm them. And it's not loving to not affirm people. And I want you to know, if it's not loving to not affirm people, then I don't love my kids because it is often in their journey. I have not affirmed their choices. (laughs) And if it's not loving to not affirm people, Jesus does not love you. Because in verses, in chapters, in books, Jesus comes and says, I accept that, but I can't affirm that. It's not hateful to have a conversation. It's not hateful to engage with people that you love and maybe disagree with. Tim Keller, he said this, I thought this was beautiful. Tim Keller, Timothy Keller, he's a great author. I'd encourage you to read something from him, anything, he's a great author. Pastor of a church up in New York City. He said this, he said, the church should feel like a waiting room for a doctor not for an interview. See, the difference between waiting for an interview and waiting to see a doctor, if you're waiting for an interview, like you got your best on, you're dressed to the nines, right? And you're projecting strength. You got a resume with how amazing and awesome you are. And you're walking in saying like, I'm the man, I'm the woman for the job. But when you're going to see a doctor, you show with your pajamas on, you got like snot coming out of your nose. You ain't brushed your hair in three days. You ain't taking a shower. And you don't care who sees you because the people next to you, they look just like you do. Hey, I want everybody to know coming to this place, you're not showing up for a job interview trying to get God to love you. We all show up to a hospital saying, I'm sick, I'm broken, I need a savior. I'm as broke as you are, maybe not in the same place, but we all need Jesus. And the way we're going to change is someone needs to be bold enough to tell us what truth is, to lay down and show us the line, to help us walk in convictions. But when we fall short and when we miss the mark, I don't need you to rub my face in it. I need God. Jesus showed up full of grace and truth. I need brothers and sisters of Christ who are full of grace and truth. Don't stop telling me the truth. We need the truth, but don't stop showing me compassion because that's where grace comes from. We need both grace and truth. So... At the end of the day, I think, I think it's unchristlike. You say, what is? I think condoning a homosexual lifestyle for Christians is unchristlike. And I think people who call themselves Christians to condemn homosexuals is unchristlike. We can't condone homosexuality and we will not condemn homosexuals we are all in a journey together I know one thing that lost people need Jesus and lost people can only find Jesus through found people however lost people will never connect with found people that are critical judgmental 
hateful and self-righteous. So church, this is messy. It's not as clean as sometimes we wish it would be. But I want all of you to know something. I don't know if I said this, sometimes services run together. We, we have people of every stripe in this. You can't have thousands of people show up at our campuses and not have people from every walk of life. I'm glad you're here. Whoever you are, and whatever you're going through. And I want you to know, you cannot take your cues from culture. We have to hear, what is Jesus? What's he say? And so church, we gotta be bold enough to speak truth. But we gotta do it in compassion. And wherever we're struggling, we gotta hear truth. And it always comes with compassion. And so if you are identifying or struggling with or walking in or wrestling through same-sex attraction, I don't know what that feels like. And I'm sure there's days it's absolutely overwhelming and scary. But I hope that here at Faith Church, you find a place where you're loved and more importantly, with the heavenly father who demonstrated his love by giving you his son, Jesus. For the church, stop being silent. Stop allowing culture to shut you up. You don't have to be mean and hateful, but in relationship with the right people at the right time, be willing to have conversations that are full of grace and truth. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, all of us are broken and all of us need a savior. Father, I pray every single person hearing this message, Lord, that you would move way beyond the capacity and ability of my words. And Lord, I pray that you'll grab the attention of every single person's heart. I pray God, those hearing this who are in a same-sex relationship or wrestling with same-sex attraction, Lord, I pray that you would, they would hear you call them to maybe, maybe, maybe make a difficult, hard decision, but Lord, to follow you, to surrender to you. And Lord, I pray for us as the church all together, God, help us as we navigate difficult conversations. God, again, to be bold enough to have convictions and compassionate enough to have the grace that you fully walked in. Lord, we know with your grace, we can impact this world. And Father, we thank you in advance for it. In Jesus' name, everybody who agrees, said amen.